Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 284. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here is your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 284 you're listening to. My guest today is Dallas Taylor, who is the host and creator of the amazing, amazing 20,000 Hertz podcast, which is one of my favorites, and I listen to it quite often. Dallas is also the creative director of DeFacto Sound, where he's led thousands of high-profile projects ranging from blockbuster trailers and advertising campaigns to Sundance award-winning films and major television series. He's a sought-after speaker at conferences and a regular contributor to major publications and definitely a respected thought leader on the narrative power of sound. So very excited to bring you my guest today, Dallas Taylor, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about the birds and the bees. And the lawnmowers and the leaf blowers and the planes and the dishwashers and all the other things out there that make sound. No, we're not talking about the birds and the bees in the traditional sense. Everybody can relax now, right? So we're several months into this quarantine thing. And I don't know about you all, but I have noticed sound in ways that I have never really noticed it before. And I'm not exactly sure why that is. You know, I've been doing this a long time and sure, sound has always been important to me and I've noticed sounds in the environment before but something is making me hyper aware now and I don't know why that is and one of the first things I noticed is what I perceived as an increase in bird activity in my neighborhood there just seems to be so many more birds you'll be out in my backyard and all of a sudden you'll hear this I can't even I don't even want to try to imitate it because I'll butcher the sound but The sound, the distinct sound of a hummingbird flying by your head. It's almost like a a low mid sound that just is, it's like a whooshes by you. I've noticed that and hawks and crows and all the other types of birds out there in the world that we at least have up here in Northern California. That has been of particular interest to me, really paying attention to the bird sounds. Also, there seems to be more bee activity and I'll be sitting there and we'll hear the telltale sign of bees. You know, you've walked by a group of flowers before and you've heard that sound, that that buzzing sound of bees doing their business. And it's, it's fascinating on one level. It's also scary on another level if you're allergic. I'm not allergic that I know of, but um, you just think, oh, I got to stay away from that. There's a lot of bees over there, but just interesting to listen to the sounds of it. So I'll be out there, you know, in the backyard and I hear all of this. And then of course, you know, you have the inevitable leaf blower or lawnmower or airplane or some kind of man-made intrusion uh, that also comes into play there, which has been really uh, on my radar lately. Of course, many of you will say, well, Matt, it's probably summertime creeping up on us. Naturally, you're going to hear more birds and bees. I get that. It just seems to be more than it usually is at this time of year. It's kind of nuts. So some of these sounds have gotten me to pay attention even more so to sounds in my house. And this may sound ridiculous. You might have an image of me kneeling down next to the dishwasher, but 
the dishwasher makes some amazing sounds when it's running. And I'll catch myself just, you know, kneeling down next to the dishwasher with my ear to the dishwasher going, I've got to capture that. I've got to figure out how to get those sounds on a recording somehow. Also, uh, my son and I have been 3D printing and the 3D printer makes the most amazing sounds. Just unbelievable. I've got to capture some of this stuff and share it with you. I'm not going to do it for probably a few weeks, so don't don't go looking for a link to any sounds just yet. But I'll maybe I'll share them on social media at some point when I have a, a decent catalog of stuff. Also, I've been watching a lot of horror movies and really paying attention to soundtracks and sound design in horror movies. Now, let me be clear. I have no designs on becoming a sound designer in, in that sense, but... I've just really been noticing these sounds and it's very inspirational on in many ways. And I'm going to link to, in the show notes of, of this episode, I'm going to link to a movie that I watched. It's just got the best uh, soundtrack and sound design for a horror movie that I've observed or heard in some time. The movie is called Sinister. It's with Ethan Hawke, Fred Thompson, who was in Law and Order and he was a U.S. Senator. And anyhow, Fred Thompson always played like, you know, the hard ass and, of course, he plays a sheriff in this movie. And Ethan Hawke plays a writer. And I'm not going to tell you the plot of the movie, but I'll just say, check it out. It's really cool. There is a Sinister 2. I haven't watched that yet. I'm going to check that out and hope that it's got a similar kind of vibe and similar soundtrack. But the soundtrack to that movie, to Sinister, is just out of this world. It's really unlike most soundtracks I've heard. And I think if you wear headphones like I was when I watched it, you'll be extra creeped out. So be sure and check that out. And just a parting thought just on these sounds and, and capturing sounds and thinking about sounds in your environment. I made a friend long ago at Mix of the Masters, Brett Boolean. Brett, if you're listening, hope you're doing well. And uh, Brett turned me on to a great thing, an old device that a lot of you older folks will remember, the suction cup phone tap. I don't know if you remember that, but you could attach it to the receiver of a landline and capture both ends of the conversation. And it had like an eighth inch jack at the end that you could plug into a recorder. Well, they still make those. I'll put a link in the show notes, probably going to be some type of Amazon link, but I'm not proposing you go and record conversations on the phone. However, what Brett turned me on to was the fantastic ability of the suction cup phone tap to pick up electronic sounds of devices from your cell phones to uh, other recorders or any type of electronic device that has some kind of uh, activity going on, uh, this little suction cup phone tap thing can pick them up. And if you're into sound design, this is a great way to get some interesting sounds going into your library. So, and that's it. I just wanted to tell you a little bit about the fact that I've just been so tuned into the environmental sounds around me more so than I ever have been in all these years. And maybe it's the same for you. Maybe you've noticed some of the same things I have, like the nature things, the birds, the bees, uh, woodland creatures out there. I don't know. Very interesting. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Keep your ears sharp. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that 
Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Dallas Taylor here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Dallas, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'll get this out of the way. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. It's probably one of the ones I listen to the most. The production is outstanding, the content is outstanding, and I learn something new every time I listen. One of my favorite episodes recently was when you explored backward masking in the Judas Priest trial. That just took me back to when I was a kid listening to Judas Priest. Thanks. Yeah, it's a tricky balance with this show because the whole mission of the show is to get normal people more in tune with their hearing and listening. It's tricky because there's this balance between what super pro audio people will accept and enjoy, but then also like your grandmother may enjoy. So there's always this marriage that we're trying to build where it's like both sides of that are appeased in some way. Maybe we don't go super far into the pro audio side. But hopefully we can at least tell stories that gives a little bit of insight behind these sounds and music. I think that you're hitting the mark 100% with the show because it does lean into the mainstream. And I'm sure your downloads show that. But also it really still keeps the pro audio crowd, like myself, interested. 
So we've been working on the show publicly for three and a half years, and then the very first two episodes took about a year to make. Every episode takes around 200, 250 hours to craft together. But the way that I think about it is that sound has never really had much of a seat at the creative table as a sound designer myself. And I wanted to make something that just started getting culture more involved in this. Like we have these five core human senses. So we're extraordinarily visual creatures and you really can't look anywhere in your periphery without seeing something that's highly curated and crafted by a human to appeal to your visual sense. We have our sense of taste, and I don't know about you, but I care about what I eat in usually a poor manner. But I like flavors and trying things, and I like the art of cooking. But it's something we curate a lot. And so we're looking at our visual sense. You don't have to be a visual file to accept that. You have our sense of taste. You don't have to be a taste file to accept that. We have our sense of touch, the shoes, the clothes on our back, the seats that we're in, the furniture, HVAC, all kinds of stuff that appeal to that sense of touch. And you don't have to be a touch to have opinions on what is comfortable. You see where I'm going with this. And then we have deodorants and candles and perfumes and soaps and sewage management. But you also don't have to be a smellophile in order to have opinions on the way that you would like for your environment and world to smell like. But with sound, we have music, which is awesome. And I love music. But we've kind of treated music as the entirety of the sonic world around us. And you can kind of have musical tastes, but you can't really have tastes in how your space sounds or that wretched squeal of the brakes of a bus or something that just never goes away. The vast majority of the sonic world is not music. And it's gorgeous. And it's amazing. And it causes stress. It causes anxiety. It causes pleasure. All of these things. And the whole spirit of the show is just to get people in tune with that sense and treat it like something they can curate like the other senses. Like we've kind of had the audiophilism, which has a lot of negatives in culture and that's pushed a lot of people away. And that's also been kind of like a gatekeeping thing. And whereas I think if we turn all that around and we get everyone involved in sound and thinking about it and understanding the differences and all these subtle nuances, if anything, that's just going to give us all way more work because now people care. So if, if people don't really care, just imagine how much work and opportunities we'll have as sound designers and sound engineers if the world does care. 250 hours, did you say, per episode? Yeah. So it's a pretty intense process. There's a lot of pre-production that's involved with it. And just to kind of find that sticky story. So we think a lot about what is just interesting to us. What do we want to dig into as a topic? So we usually very intentionally hire writers that are not sound people in order to have that checks and balances system. Now, every show does come back internal with our sound team to really make sure that it's being communicated properly. And if there's some nuances that maybe a writer didn't understand as sound people, we can correct that. But usually we go out and we, we find the foremost experts in the field for this specific thing, preferably somebody who speaks very well. We will talk about what do we want the arc to look like. The key here is that we want to make sure that we're telling really relatable human stories if possible. But we'll still just like start processes with just a cool idea like, oh my goodness, did you hear that the Seinfeld theme song was recreated every single show to work around Jerry's jokes? We should do a whole show about that. And then we do. But generally, yeah, so there's all this kind of pre-production. Where do we want the story to go? Then who's the right person to talk to? And then pre-coronavirus, we would send a sound person to that expert or put that expert in a remote studio where one of our writers or me will have an interview with them. We'll prepare all the questions. But of course, listen along the way. See if there's any kind of twists and turns. 
Yeah. So then we'll usually do that with a couple of people. Most are, are kind of sweet spot or two guests, preferably bouncing off of each other. So we'll have a second process with a second guest. And this is all before we even have audio, really, other than, than just the guest audio. So we get these recordings back. It's really key that these are super high quality on the voice itself because everything relies on how crystal clear and beautiful a voice is. You know, if it's crystal clear and beautiful, then sound design will sell better. The nuances of a mix will sell better because that's that anchor point. And so we have, yeah, all of that. We'll bring it in. We'll have a full transcript made by a human. We'll provide those two transcripts to a writer. The writer will then start to weave and think about sound clips and what should I say to kind of bridge these gaps. So there's all, all this time that just simply goes into the writing of the episode. So that's just tons and tons of time just crafting the story. Then we'll do a table read where we'll get with the writer and we'll just read it from top to bottom. And then I'll react to things that don't feel right or seem a little off or maybe a story structure thing needs to be, you know, this little particular thing needs to go earlier or later. So a lot of like story crafting, they'll go back, rewrite the script, get everything. We may go back and forth. Eventually that hits our sound editor who will then, I'll record my voice, then sound editor will put it together. Then we do the entire thing all over again, over and over and over and over again. So we may go through anywhere from four or five script versions up to just on the, then flipping it over to the audio side, we may do five, 10 plus versions just to nail down every single nuance. So that's just a lot of time that it just takes so many people to get through to build out all of that episode. And then hopefully at the end, usually about two weeks before an episode launches, I think it's the end of us and we put all this time into something that's going to bury us and it's going to be awful. And then usually about three or four days before we launch, it's my favorite episode, every episode. <laughs> so it seems to be working out. <laughs> Do you batch the episode production and then put them all out at one time? We're kind of in a rolling schedule all the time. Most of our episodes, as far as like the turnaround time, we usually start the episodes about four months on average, some more, but about four months prior to an air date is when we really need to start getting that date filled because it takes so long just to get the guests, the pre-production, finding the guests, finding the right person. Nowadays, recording is a bit of a challenge. And then just that whole process of sleeping on it and understanding the story and merging it together in a script and then back and forth and back and forth. So usually we're trying to get four to six months ahead of time. Some episodes have taken a full year, depending on figuring out licensing and just getting people to understand that we're, we're a good show, trying to make everyone sound really awesome. Wow. I want to throw a little perspective into this here. So audience, Dallas and I are recording this interview on a Monday. When we are done with this, Dallas will send his, his audio. I will then put it together in a Pro Tools session with my audio. I will then send it off to Anne-Marie for editing, and then I'll go through a round of editing. And pretty much by Monday, the following Monday in a week, this show will be out. Yeah. Sometimes I listen to an episode and realize, wow, when I did that interview, I was a different person. The world was different because the turnaround times are so long. So we're very evergreen. We're almost like, like an animated show has like a full year cycle. But also I go back to that checks and balances thing because another thing that's really important is that our show is an evergreen show. So it's not ever talking about something that's news of the day or news of the month. Part of the checks and balances of that is really long production cycles to where we can realize that any show that we do should be just as relevant in six months. In theory, that show should still be as relevant as it is today in five years or 10 years. That's very intentional to where every single episode has this longevity, this body of work aspect to it, rather than it being something that kind of comes and goes. And so that's really important to us. We're nearing 100 episodes. And if you kind of do the math, insane amounts of time to build that out. 
every two weeks is when we come out. And that's, that's the other thing too, is we edit so extreme to where you don't have to push 1.2 or two times speed on your podcast player. Yeah. Thank you for that. Actually on other podcasts, I'll listen at 1.2 to 1.5, sometimes two times speed. And that's okay. It's an informational thing with what we're doing. We're very much crafting like this whole narrative and pacing and sound design and thoughtful music choices and ins and outs and kind of this holistic thing that's meant to be enjoyed like a Netflix documentary. Yeah, I've said it before, audience, but you really have to check out 20,000 Hertz. It's an outstanding show and you really get a lot out of it from a cultural perspective, but also a pro audio perspective. And it's a show that you could come back to 10 or 20 years from now and still get something out of it. So well done with that. I do want to dive into your background a bit. Where did you grow up? Arkansas. The Delta of Arkansas, so a very poor area outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And I was so-so in school, but a at some point band came through and someone put a trumpet in my hands and miraculously I was good at it. And that's really what led me out of that area into college. Now, the problem is, is once I got to college, I was at the top of all of my ensembles as a trumpet player and in the symphony and the jazz band and the wind symphonies and all that stuff. But about three years in, had the severe bout of performance anxiety. And all of the muscles in your mouth to perform on a trumpet are so delicate and tiny that anything going on mentally comes out of, is projected and amplified exponentially when it comes out of the bell. So my, this extreme bout of performance anxiety kind of squashed that whole thing. Simultaneously, I was very interested in being a conductor, like a wind band conductor or a symphony conductor. So that's kind of along the way I was thinking a lot about that, maybe some composition, but conducting always was something that I was really interested in. Through that process, I started going to recording school and very quickly learned about soundtracks and Foley and artifacts and emotional effects and how this stuff crafts a story. And over time, I got a just an internship at a, at a local news station, just pointing a camera at a news anchor. But I knew that like 20 feet away, there was an audio person. It was the only opportunity I had to get close to a sound person. Luckily, that sound person took me under their wing. I started mixing shows live, which is an incredible stress unto itself. But I felt like I was conducting. I had the material and I had to craft it emotionally. And there's only so much you can do with news and entertainment and sports things. But I always knew that post-production is where I wanted to go. So eventually I got a miraculous lead into that, being in the right place at the right time. So on the live side, I was working at NBC and Fox, got my first big break at G4, which was an old video game network. And that was just an incredible amount of work. Looking back on it, it was like we were working so fast that it made no sense at all, like doing entire mixes on shows and half days and stuff, which was miserable. And now I would never do that. And then, then eventually that led me to a senior sound designer position at the Discovery Channel. Did that, loved it, had a really great time doing it, but wanted to expand out beyond Discovery and start working with National Geographic and maybe mixing trailers and maybe mixing these cool ad spots. And I generally saw that all of the coolest sound design stuff went out of house. So started my own company, DeFacto Sound, about 10, 11 years ago. Since then, started very much with Discovery type of projects and then started getting my friends from Discovery would go over to National Geographic or maybe go to New York and do um, something like A&E and then we'd slowly get those things. And then so the, over the course of 10 years now, we're working on giant car commercials and sneaker commercials and still doing a lot of promos for Discovery, but we also do a ton of HBO trailers and Netflix trailers. 
very specifically on short form because I love doing things that don't drag on for an eternity. (laughs) (laughs) So some of these do drag on for an eternity, but I just love the idea of just every millisecond is crafted to the utmost ability. And then about four, four and a half years ago, started thinking about, okay, should we do our own internal passion project that turned into 20,000 hertz, which then spiraled into a life of its own. But to go all the way back to conducting, I feel like that's kind of what my entire career has been, is conducting. I love mixing. I love doing sound design, but I love crafting it in a mix. And so I still feel like I do that with the podcast. I'm conducting a business. I'm conducting the sounds in the podcast, the sounds in a lot of these promos and trailers. And I operate like a creative director. So I have a team of sound designers just crushing it and then sending it to me. And I'm saying, well, try this. What about this? Ah, that's not quite selling. Why don't we do this? And back and forth. And it's it's a blast. It's a great job (laughs) that I've kind of built for myself. Podcast host, creative director of a sound design studio. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. At DeFacto Sound, roughly how many people do you have working with you or for you? So we have five. So me, three other sound designers, and our producer, Sam. On the podcast, we do hire a sound editor to help put these things together more preliminary as a preliminary pass. Every show has a different writer, definitely repeat writers, but we've probably worked with maybe 15 different writers for different episodes. But our core team is five. We feel like we're a band. We've had six before and it felt too big. We've had four before and it feels too small. So like five seems perfect. Three sound designers, me as a creative director, and then Samantha holding the fort down and pushing everything forward. When I think of an audio business venture, I think a lot of us naturally think, oh, I'll have a recording studio. This is not a recording studio in the traditional sense. Is that correct? I don't know. I think that there's a lot of things that are a bit antiquated in our worlds. And what's interesting is I'm in front of an audience that may disagree with a lot of things that I would think about. Will, you you tell us what you think. Oh, God, I don't even know where to start. So I was the very first person that I knew to start a company, and I was using Pro Tools LE. 
I wouldn't even admit to it because it was such a faux pas or so frowned upon in the audio community. I started to stop caring. I, I feel like I'm going to get a little too opinionated. I can feel it coming. I stopped caring what the audio community thinks about how sound works. And I really kind of extracted myself out of that. And I think that that's ultimately what led to 20,000 hertz. Because we do, as sound people, live in such an echo chamber. And we might not realize it. The audio community is extremely small. And professionals are even smaller. And so we listen to the people and all this stuff. But when this community is small... There's this natural just echo chamber or maybe a handful of people really kind of like writing the rules. And so I had to kind of pull myself out of that. The worst example of this is I kind of think of old school audiophilism or old school ways of thinking about audio engineering is like there's this angry guy in a dark room with a bunch of gear and you don't question that. You don't poke that bear. And that is what I want to fight against on all fronts with the show, with my mission. I want to be like a world where we need all these new voices. We hear more people kind of coming into this, feeling like it's an accepted place. We have as audio people, and, and myself included, have excluded a lot of people. And we've made up our own kind of culture and our own ways of talking. And certain sects of this audio world, it's very grumpy. <laughs> and I don't want to be grumpy. <laughs> I want to be happy and I want to challenge people. But I think that to get a seat at the table, we have to be open and transparent. We have to accept other people's opinions on sound. Because again, if you go back to our other four senses, we don't need some sort of degree or something to, to have an opinion on, our, on what we eat or what we see or the art we like or all these things. There's no difference with sound either. Over the course of my career, I have learned that the best sound designers in the world are not sound people. They're these super high-level thinkers. They're directors. They're writers. They're people who are already putting this effort into the sonic environment while they're writing and while they're directing. And then we get the opportunity. And over enough time of trust, then we get more and more opportunities. And then I get a seat at the table. And I can say, well, I just read the script or I read this, this short little spot. But what if you try doing this without music? What, what would it sound like? You know, we don't have to do it. It's cheap. Or why don't we try a pass of sound only before we even go to the video editor? So over time, with being transparent and accepting other people's opinions, I've received a seat at the table in many situations. And I think that's how we all do it, is being open, transparent, and then also listening to other people and understanding that everyone should have an opinion on sound. And it's perfectly fine. You know, you're hitting on some points here that I agree with so much. I've never been a big fan of dogma in any way, shape, or form. And I want to highlight one point, one example. In the pro audio community, let's say in the world of mixing, it used to be frowned upon for people to mix in the box. But it takes somebody on a high level, like Chad Blake, like Andrew Sheps, to say, I'm now mixing in the box, for people to say, oh, well, that's acceptable. But if you were on a lower level, people then say, well, that's amateur. That, that doesn't work or that's not going to work. And I've always found that very frustrating that it takes a high-level person to give any kind of credibility to a new idea or an idea that starts on the lower level. Another thing to think about here is that over the past 30 years, there's been a massive democratization of access to tools and to sounds and to just the raw materials to create. Before, and this worked in video too, like you couldn't record an album 
unless you had a giant studio. And really, you were selling your clients on the looks of things. You were on the look of your studio, on the look of how many faders you have, how big the console is. It's a Neve. It's an SSL. None of that matters. And we all know this, and I'm sure you've said this a hundred times. None of that matters without the talent behind it. Now, we have a circumstance where it's purely talent-based. Because of over the past 30 years, now all these tools have become available. Now people can create freely. And frankly, the best sound designers I am hearing across the board are like young 20s crushing it because they didn't grow up with this whole idea of like, oh, to do this, I need an SSL. To do this, I need Pro Tools. To do this, I need to get my Pro Tools 101 certification and then my 201 certification and then da 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 and then blah, 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 blah. Like I'm hearing sound designers and musicians come out and just crush it because none of that stuff matters to them. Whereas people who may be 35, 40, 45, 50 plus, we grew up in an era where bells and whistles were important. And that's another thing too, even with the start of DeFacto, I was like, I will never have a client based off of how big my audio board is or how much blinking lights I have. Because now that I own a business, the amount of money that gets sunk into a gigantic console is scary. And we're a successful 10 year plus studio and I couldn't afford a bunch of... even 30 fader whatevers, they don't matter. I don't have 30 fingers. <laughs> I have 10 fingers and I might be able to use about three max simultaneously. I don't need more than three faders <laughs> personally. <laughs> so everything has just been to democratization of all these tools. The amount of tools that we have are more than we've ever had. And now if we can kind of do a marriage of those two things, like we just put out a show about Star Wars and just the brilliance of how much Ben Burt recorded as a human to get human characteristics out of it. But again, like, when we're thinking about sound, we got to zoom way out. We got to think about the story. That's why like, when I think about the podcast, I am not even thinking about sound because there's such a story that has to be crafted about the thing. When we're doing TV spots or whatever, like it's so much about like what's the message and how does every single choice we make support the message rather than it being, oh, de facto sound has this new fancy $100,000 tool. So now we're going to go use them. Like what are the chances that someone got a bank loan, $100,000 tool or more, and they're the best person in the world for that. Not very much. So nowadays, now it's like the best people in the world have access. And so I, I just think a lot about, I just don't care what the hottest new giant expensive piece of gear is. It's more so if I need it, then I'll get it. But usually I don't. Usually there's plenty of other. I, I'll tell you a story. For example, when I was freelancing, before I started Discovery, One thing I noticed is I would go into these advertising studios. They're gorgeous. If you've ever been to like an edit house that's just purely for advertising, there's nothing like it. Sometimes they're chefs. The rooms are ridiculous and beautiful because they're all about blinking lights. They're all about the look of this stuff. Even kind of skipping all the edit and all that stuff, we get into the audio room. We have this gorgeous Neve or SSL with tons of faders, tons of blinking lights. It looks gorgeous. We got a half million dollar recording room. The whole room is built out by the world's most famous acousticians and stuff. I open Pro Tools, stock across the board. No additional plugins, not even waves. Like in Pro Tools, there were literally no tools. And like even the sound effects library would be like Sound Ideas 6000 series. So it just proved to me that so much about this industry was all about smoke and mirrors, not about the best product. It was about smoke and mirrors and who has the most stuff and who can impress people upon first walking into a studio. I will never be able to beat somebody on money and just pure money pouring into something to try to impress someone. I also don't care at all about a client who wants to be impressed by that stuff because their priorities are wrong. Well said. Wow. I have to think for a moment about that. (laughs) You can direct your hate mail to uh, (laughs) dallas at defactosound.com. No. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love the toys. I love to try them out, but I'm just not obsessed with them in the same way that I used to be. And don't get me wrong, that's perfectly fine. I love playing around with new toys and scents and twisty knobs and that stuff. But there is this like, I think we all know it. Am I buying something to impress people or am I buying something because it's a very valuable tool for my workflow? There's a very clear distinction between the two. I think many of us who, if we're we're independent, we buy tools based on what we need, especially if we're remote and we're kind of working out of our own places and all that stuff. We buy what we need if we don't have a bunch of people coming in. But there's this whole skew that happens when you have a human being walk in where you start making a bunch of decisions based on, oh man, I really want to impress those people. Problem is I run a successful studio and I couldn't afford it, especially in music. My goodness. Oof. I, I don't know how people in music buy so much gear. It's stresses me out to look at a gear list and go, you're about to declare bankruptcy. (laughs) (laughs) At least that's what I think. I might be wrong, but I don't know where all of these sound engineers and people, like if they're all from super rich families, because that's my only explanation when I see a lot of gear list stuff. (laughs) I want to make sure I understand it and bring clarity to this for others wondering the same thing. When you're talking about sound designers, you mentioned young guns in their 20s that are crushing it. What are we talking about exactly when we're saying sound design? Can you clarify that a bit? So sound design has always been a controversial word that I have decided to work to use liberally, specifically to give sound a seat at the table. All of the people on our team are called sound designers. Now, of course, they're doing dialogue editing, they're mixing, they're doing sound effects editing, they're doing all of the traditional roles, re-recording, mixing, they're doing all of those things. But I just encompass all of it as a sound designer. And some people will disagree with that. That's fine. But the point is not the actual semantics of the word. The point is is that it's a designer. It's someone who's crafting a story, and that title needs to reflect that. So myself and everyone on the team are crafting stories. We're adding sounds, we're building sounds, we're making sounds to help you know, whether it be like a boom or a hit or a squeak or foley or door slam or environments, all these things to build out a world all the way to making dialogue sound incredible and a mix and music that supports that really well. All of this is a design process. If you took all of those things and had visual analogs, you would call yourself a graphic designer or you'd call yourself a designer of some sort. And so nowadays I've just adopted that started with, I believe, Ben Burt 40 years ago. And I think that it had a lot of the same mission was to give sound an identity and a creative seat at the table. And I've just adopted that throughout most of my career. I am designing worlds. Therefore, (laughs) I think sound design is the key term for that. Rather than sound editor, sound assistant, blah, 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 blah. None of that stuff matters. Just sound designer. Would you characterize it different from somebody who is working, say, on a record for music? Do you see that in the same way? Yeah, I'm not sure what the what the terminologies are on that side. But no, I wouldn't call them sound designers. But I don't know. I would say that I'm very ill-equipped to make that call. I mean, definitely mixers. I don't even know what the semantics are on that side. But yeah, I would say I'm specifically talking more about like sound for picture. Or sound for radio or sound for podcasts. Yeah. And it's almost like music is another category. And to be completely transparent, we almost do zero music. Unless it's very clearly something that you hear tonally that's very sound designy, but we don't do traditional tracks of music. Sometimes we'll accept a job that has a musical element to it, but the entire musical element is this like ethereal sound designy type of world. Now, once we get to a thing where like, oh, we need strings or we need a drum set or we need this, then we always go composer because composers are living and breathing this all day long. We are not. And so even music mixing, if for some reason it comes to a point where somebody's like, oh, here's my raw stems from the composer, it's just a different way of thought. Music is just a compartmentalized specialty that I would say we are not 
there are so many other people that are better at that. And what we've focused on is what we are great at. And that's building worlds, mixing those worlds. And now with the podcast, telling stories to get people into it. I want to shift gears a little bit. You are a business owner and a sound designer, and therefore there comes some responsibility with that, with people working for you and with you. So I would love if you could maybe give your perspective on money and business and sound and how the two work together. Wow, there's a lot to unpack on that one. My least favorite part of everything is doing the business aspect of it, but it is a necessary part of the process in order to build a healthy uh, team and have them be comfortable. But it also is just a ton of risk. I still feel like I'm just a freelancer to the max, meaning I still don't get like a W-2 myself. I only make money if all of my bills are paid. And the bills are a lot, like the bigger that we get or the more things that happen. So I don't make anything until all the bills are paid. And then we still have to have some sort of cushion to just operate in case of a rainy day and then make a few bucks on top of it, hopefully. But there's so much to it. There's the aspect of management, being a leader, the actual financials, bidding, all kinds of stuff. And I guess with talking more about bidding, I would say that earlier in my career, I thought that people were motivated by being the cheapest. Later in my career, I realized that many of the biggest clients in the world will knock you out of contention just because you were too cheap. I've seen it happen many times. Bidding is a credibility test at least on our side. I'm not going to say that this for everyone because people do price shop, but we are working with companies and ad agencies. Very, very high-end thing. We're not working with individuals, which is a totally different world because of course, if I'm spending my own money, I want to negotiate and make sure that we're in the same ballpark. But when we're getting into like commercial projects, I mean, you can't be insane with your bidding, but like you, you do have to plan for contingencies. Uh, again, I pull myself out of this world, but I feel like in this echo chamber, there's a little bit of a point of pride for people who can do it as cheaply as possible and as fast as possible. And both of those things is not a place I want to be in my life at all, because that's just a setup for misery. So yeah, I push back hard on fast as possible, especially. Personally, I think it's a mistake to start a website where it's just immediately like budget-friendly solution or always on time, always on budget or things like that, because I think that that's not where you want to position yourself in the future. I think we all want to be positioned as that person is the best in the world at that thing that they're doing. I've worked with them before and they just created so much space and room and clarity and da 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 And I will pay, of course, maybe I don't have enough money, but I'm going to at least negotiate. I mean, even with us, of course, we'll bid on things and maybe it'll be too high. But if somebody really wants to work with us, I want to work with them because they recognize the talent. And of course, I'll, we'll negotiate and, and find something that's good. But I learned a lot about, recently, I've learned a lot about positioning. What is the client or the person that you're trying to work with? What do you want them to think of you as? And I've never been in a situation ever in my entire career where being the cheapest or the fastest was a positive. It always ends in just heartbreak and frustration and anger. And so I try not to get involved with that type of a rat race. Right. But at the same time, you don't like projects that drag on and on and on. If they're paying for it, I'm cool with that. <laughs> and some do. Some drag on and on and on and on and on out of our control. And we just, okay, cool, whatever. Once the virus hits and half the advertisers that were in the middle of projects for had to reevaluate how they build this entire campaign. So we knew that in that instant that everything was going to start to drag on. So we have a handful of projects that have been going on for months just because of the new adaptation of the world events. I want to ask you about those who have influenced you mentors, but also those like thought leaders that you might pay attention to out in the world today? Yeah. Creative influencers. 
I would say that I have a tendency to still go back to the Skywalker Sound team pre-Skywalker Sound. Like, what were they doing when they just had like a tape recorder? and that whole human performance aspect of it. I think if you were thinking about music, and this I'm out of my element when I'm talking about music, but I would think the analog would be having the performer play it at the absolute best of their ability before we touch it. When we record and capture sounds, getting a human quality to it requires a performance and understanding of where it's going and what's happening there. So creatively, it's always story-driven, story-driven, story-driven. If you were thinking about music, it would be really this artist should be able to communicate their music in the most top-notch way possible. And if now we're having to do post-production magic and music or whatever, it's like it's almost starting to miss a little of the point. You can most certainly boost and make things better, but at the same time, the heart and soul and the energy and the, the message and all this stuff should be set and performed at the highest level possible. I think of the same thing with sound effects and design and story and all those things. The thing that doesn't work is okay, we're going to do every single process we've ever done in the exact same order. So we're going to start with pre-production, then we're going to go into production, then we're going to go to the editor, then we're going to go to graphic design, then we're going to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with the client, then we're going to lock it, then we're going to go to sound. If you push everything through that same sausage factory, this is why we get the commercials that are all the same, and they're just the same thing over and over and over again. It takes getting out of that process in order to really start to why don't, we, why don't we put sound with pre-production or get the writers thinking about that or the editor doing a sound design pass or, or an external team doing a sound design pass? Imagine what you can come up with when sound gets a seat at the table early on and in sound and picture, there are only two human senses involved. I think the cliche of sound is 50% of the picture. I don't know. It just depends on the circumstances. But I do know that there's so much potential in sound design that is not being utilized. And I think the next frontier in both culture and sound design and visual stuff especially is really paying attention to how we can craft sound. And on culture, I think that a lot of our future is going to be, we always want kind of luxury and make our lives better and all that stuff. And I think there's this giant, untapped, enormous amount of information on sound that I think will get people in tune with that. Mm -hmm. The early sound crew for Star Wars is a great point of interest for you, it seems. Very much so. And that was our latest episode and really just how few tools they had to succeed. And they succeeded. And we're still talking about it 40 years later. And that's because there wasn't a gatekeeping thing. Ben Burt, I believe this was his first job out of college from USC. Again, going back to that young 20s type of mentality where I'm seeing just incredible talent. As we get older, we kind of get more and more. And I'm trying to fight this myself. We get more and more into this is how we do things. These are the tools we use where you see this natural buildup of young people that come up and they don't have these preconceived notions and they're refiguring it out in a new world and with the tools they have and what they can achieve is just incredible. And so Ben Burt, straight out of grad school at USC, we're still talking about the job he did on Star Wars because he didn't have all these preconceived notions of the 30 years prior. I mean, he knew it because he intellectually went through grad school and stuff, but the tools were just, you know, he had a tape recorder. How's he going to do an entire space saga with a tape recorder? That's incredible. That's what inspires me because it's just all story driven. He's only thinking story. I'm sure, of course, there's an inherent thing of the gear, but your gear, an artist or a painter, like Michelangelo, I doubt is consciously thinking about paint and brushes and things. Yes, he preps those things, but I'm really thinking that he's that when when all these things are being prepped, he's thinking about the mission and the story and what he's painting. Whereas our tools as sound people should be this transparent thing that just gets us to the story faster. So really thinking about the story, tools are transparent. Of course, practicing and learning new tricks and stuff. But once you're in the, the zone, 
whether you're mixing music or, or mixing an advertising spot or a film or whatever, at that point, you're a vessel and brain needs to be on story. What's the message? What's this track about? What's this story about? How can I support that in every single micro decision that I make? Are there any other thought leaders outside of audio that really influence you? For business, the people that I'm just really love working with is this group called RevThink. They both led big time production studios and then went on to consulting. I work with them a lot with positioning and understanding what clients think. Been really happy with that world. But of course, a lot of books, things like I think Ryan Holiday did The Obstacle is the Way. It's something that I'm thinking about a lot lately with this virus. It's really easy to think, well, the virus has preordained our future. But if you can shift that focus into anytime there is an obstacle, that is what defines us. And that's the new parameter that will push us to the next level. So the obstacle that we come across is the way forward. How do we not get paralyzed by that? And how do we push through that? So I listen to a lot of business books and Seth Godin and all the like main players in business books. So whether or not I'm talking with my friend who works in sales, we're reading and I usually do it on audiobooks, but we're reading a lot of the same content just to kind of get us in that right headspace. How do you manage work-life balance for your personal world? Very intentionally, extremely intentionally. There's nothing like having kids to force you to do that. But even without kids, it's important to recharge. And one thing that I notice, I'm sure this might resonate with a few people, some of my best ideas come when I'm forced away from my computer and forced away from my phone. So whether or not I'm on a run or a walk or in the shower or in a place where I don't even have access to technology in some regard, sometimes my brain starts to think in a new way. And so that gives me the ability to realize the importance of recharging and rest. We need to take vacations. We need to take hours where we're just vegging a little bit and watching Netflix or whatnot and just chilling. So yeah, when I first moved out to LA, started my career, I was young 20s, working with a lot of people and grizzled old guys in the, in the business that are 65 years old union, people who've been doing this for 40 plus years. And I remember something that stuck with me even now, 20 years later, is that they were telling me, be on burnout prevention. Like at some point, you're going to see through all of this. Right now, you're wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. But at some point, you're going to see through all of it. And be on burnout prevention because you will hit burnout. And a lot of people hit burnout. I mean, I can't predict exactly when, but I've seen people in their late 20s hit burnout. I've seen people in their young 30s. It seems like it peaks around 30. And so how do you, knowing that it's coming, how do you adjust the way you live to know that that's on the way. And one of those ways is to give yourself rest, have hobbies outside of what you're doing, because that period of rest will recharge the firing of your neurons and how you think when you do sit down. And so then having kids, my kids, I have three daughters and they deserve a great dad. And my daughters have zero idea what I do. They know that I have a cool office but they don't know what I do. They come in and talk to my microphone occasionally, but they don't care about <laughs> anything that I'm doing. Yeah, so I just need that time and the kids need the time. Another thing is just like, especially in like video game worlds and sometimes, I can't really speak to music because I don't know that too often, but that pride and crunch time, that like taking pride in 16-hour days, I don't take pride in that. That is a disaster. It's also just not healthy. There's a reason that a lot of us are, <laughs> are plump, in our little chairs and probably many sound people kind of medicating by drinking and stuff. And it's because like 
we're not meant to do this, <laughs> you know? Like our, our brain is not meant to sit in front of a computer screen for 16 hours and crunch day in, day out, day in, day out. We got to get back to like a holistic. Number one is your mind and your body. Get these things in sync. Step away a little bit. My fear has always been, and I still have this fear, is like if I'm not working, I'm not pushing forward. But I have to accept the fact that rest is pushing forward. It's a necessary. Eating well is a necessary thing. I don't do it often. <laughs> but when I do, it puts me in a, in a zen-like state when all these pieces are well-balanced. Your message of challenging convention is really resonating with me in a big way. Have you always pushed the boundaries a bit? Have you always challenged the status quo? I think I realized that the people that I am trying to get work from do not care about the things that inside our echo chamber we care about. No client in the history of the company has ever asked what kind of a preamp we use. Or occasionally someone's like, well, what do you use to where I can export an OMF for? Oh, Pro Tools, okay, fine. But I've just noticed that like, as sound people, we should care about these things. So don't get me wrong. New tools, sounds, all those things we should definitely care about. But when it comes to running a business, there are just priorities that a lot of clients don't care about. And if you set yourself up to be the local place, you're also setting yourself up to be a place that has to rely on bells, whistle, and brute force money spending to impress people. Now we have this virus, which in my mind is like a great equalizer. Like everyone realizes that all of this work can get done remotely. It can get worked in the comfort of our homes without the slog of an hour, hour and a half to and an hour, an hour and a half back into studios that are less equipped than most of our home studios to do our jobs. Because I know when I bought all the stuff for my home studio, when I was building all this stuff out, I got all the stuff that mattered and made sense. I remember buying like Isotope RX 1 and it taking like four years for Discovery to get the purchase order to do it. And I'd already been doing it for like four years because you're just nimble and you can do those things. So I think that this will be a little bit of a great equalizer on what's important and what's not important. And, and the thing that I've always felt was not important, at least it's important to wrong clients, is the bells and whistle and brute force spending money approach to doing work. Many of us can do a lot of this. I mean, we already do. Even that we're having the conversation still in 2020 about SSLs and Neves is kind of a failure upon the <laughs> audio community in my opinion. <laughs> not that they're not cool. They're awesome. But for most of what we do, we don't need them. Hate mail, Dallas at DeFactoSound.com. Well, yeah. If you disagree, then send Dallas a message. <laughs> or send Matt a message. Oh, yeah. You could send it to me. Why did you have that guy on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I brought this up many episodes ago, but I was looking at Reverb.com this one time, and I was sorting everything by the most expensive items. And I was looking at some console. I, I don't remember the brand of what it was, but it was in the six figures. And I showed that to my son, my youngest. And he said, if you buy that, will you make that much money back or more? No, <laughs> never. <laughs> Especially with like indie bands. No, I don't even know what people try. I mean, yeah. So ugh, ah, it's frustrating. But anyway, you know, I hope that this is just encouragement. I want it to come across as encouragement and not as, I don't want this to feel like, like a reprimand. It's not a reprimand. It's encouragement that like, and I think it's going to be intimidating too, is that it's talent based now. Sure, having money does help because you can buy these tools and stuff. But right now it's talent, pure talent that makes things great. I mean, even just looking back on Billie Eilish, I watched a documentary where I think that Phineas, her brother, they're in this tiny two-bedroom house in L.A. He's on just a kind of an old Mac. I think it's a Mac Mini maybe or Mac or something. And he has like logic on it. And she's sitting on the bed cross-legged and making this stuff. And it's because the tools have just ex exploded 
in the past 20, 30 years. And the abilities have exploded. And now the story and the, and the mission and what you can create creatively is the number one thing. And I think for audio people, we need to rise above being an engineer and please tell me what you want and start to contribute to this value to story and value to producing and value to making things better. When you think about your clients, are you making their story and making their tracks and making their content better with your intellectual value? Or are you in a situation where you're just waiting for them to tell you every single thing to do? Because if you're in the second part of that, that's a dying breed. And we got to be more proactive. We got to start contributing in ways that maybe if we call ourselves an audio engineer, we wouldn't normally do that. But it's a new world. And it's only going to get more creatively driven, high-end wise. And I think that's the way I've always set it up, is I just don't think it's enough just to provide awesome mixes. I have to give value to story. And then those people come back and then things seem to happen. Fabulous, man. Wow. A lot to unpack there. So the website for DeFacto Sound, I assume, is defactosound.com. Yep, that's it. Great, great. And everybody listening, you've got to check out 20,000 Hertz, one of the most amazing podcasts out there. So one, 20,000 Hertz, it's all spelled out, T-W-E, et cetera. Everyone probably knows the reference. That's the story aspect there, making stories about the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. Very special. I want this to be something that the audio community is proud of and that wants to share. So despite all of my opinions in this whole conversation, it's for everyone. Like the heart of this is to get people in love with hearing and sound and change culture. And it's critical that the audio community cares about this too, at least to me personally. So it is for sound people. And yeah, please engage. If you hear something that you like or don't like or whatever, engage with us. That's great because the, the mission is to give us all. I want at the end of this to there, there to be 10 times more jobs for us. It's not about crushing or suppressing. It's about opening, just blowing the lid off of this entire thing and could you imagine the world falling in love with this as much as we do? The second thing, de facto sound, that's kind of the bread and butter aspect of advertising, particularly games and animation, where we do all that stuff. And then uh, here soon, I don't know exactly when it's going to come out, but I just so happen to be a TED main stage speaker this year. <laughs> and that's coming out in a few weeks, I believe. That's right. I was going to ask you about that. That's great. Obviously, that was done in a virtual environment, I assume. Yeah, right here in, in my studio with my, I bought a little camera set up for other things and just came in handy. But lots of stuff on that side that looks a little different this year because instead of being on stage, they're having to record it and edit it. And so personally, that's even better for me because we can do a lot more when I perform and then we edit things around it. So I'm really excited about it. It's shaping up really nicely. I think it goes live to the TED audience. As of this audience hearing it, it would be last week as we're recording. It's it's coming up. So yeah, it's all on John Cage's 433 and how important that was to sound. I'll be sure and include a link in the show notes for that, as well as 20,000 Hertz and de facto sound. Dallas, thank you so much. Really great having you on. Love the conversation. Let's stay in touch. Absolutely. And I've been following your show for years, so I'm so honored to be here. Which blew me away when you said that. I was like, what? You have some heavy hitters on this show. Like, I mean, I, I've seen the people that's been on this before, and that's why I'm almost timid getting too opinionated here, because there's some brilliant people you've had on this show. So take everything I've said with a grain of salt. I'm not the end-all be-all <laughs> on any of this stuff. But now I, I think that's what initially got me tuned into this show is just like some of the most respected people in this industry come through this show. Well, I'm glad that you felt comfortable expressing your opinion because it's great food for thought for all of us, really. Never hold back. Keep challenging convention. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show and you take care. You too. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Dallas Taylor here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. want to thank the crew that helped out. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith, the voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn, spread the word, and tune in every week. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.